Philippians 4, verses 4 to 9. As I work through this text, I realize uh, this is definitely one that our flesh uh, dislikes greatly, at least mine does. So I'm not uh, coming here saying that I have this perfected, but rather that it is the fruit of my study and work and I know that it's true, even though it's difficult for us to implement. Philippians 4. Follow along, please, as I read verses 4 to 9 and hear God's Word. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving... Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good report, if there is any virtue And if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. And the God of peace will be with you. Unless the Lord builds the house, we labor in vain. So we say, come Lord, and in your mercy build a house of peace in us. With kindness, lead us in the way everlasting. As we hear these words, Lord, we confess that we tend to be anxious about, oh, so many things. When only one thing is needful, that we seek the kingdom of God with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. O comforting, compassionate Father, give us peace. We ask it in Jesus' name. And God's people say, you may be seated. The letter read, Dear Abby, I have found the secret of inner peace, and I want to share it with all of your readers. The secret of inner peace is to finish whatever you start. Just today I finished two bags of potato chips, a bottle of wine, a quart of ice cream, and a box of candy, and man, I'm feeling a lot better. (laughs) Is that the secret of inner peace that God promises? I know that you realize I enjoy counseling, and one of the things I try to remember to do when I meet folks is ask them, what is it you really want for your marriage? Maybe if you could tell me the most important thing, what is it? And almost everybody says, I just want peace. (laughs) Our homes are not the only place lacking peace, are there? Are they? Wars wage All over the globe, here in the United States, two million people are in prison. A murder occurs every 30 minutes. 
and a crime of some sort almost every second of every day. We live in a world full of violent people who commit violent crimes. We live in a violent world. We live in a place that lacks peace. How strange it seems then at first glance that the fruit of God's doing something great in our lives would be peace. Can we really have peace in the midst of chaos? Jesus seemed to think we could. Near the end of his life, he said to his followers, Peace I leave with you. My peace I now give to you. Well, that's encouraging, isn't it? And yet not everything Jesus said about peace was all upbeat, was it? He also said, do not think that I came to bring peace on this earth. I have not come to bring peace. In fact, I came to bring a sword. And then in John 16, shortly after the passage I read earlier, which is from John 14, Jesus said this, in the world you will have much tribulation. We could translate it, much chaos. He's telling us that the world is not the place where we find our peace. But when you look at the three quotes, it makes you wonder, Jesus, are, are we going to have peace or not? <laughs> and if we are to have peace, how shall we get it? Well, I want to in order to try to give some structure to our studies in the fruit of the Spirit, especially since I preach irregularly, I'm, I'm trying to discipline myself to use the same outline each time. So let's begin where we have uh, in each of the past weeks and ask that you embrace a biblical definition of peace. In order to get started, we need to embrace a biblical definition of peace, not making up our own definitions. Well, you should probably realize this, but there are different kinds of peace, are there not? There is a kind of peace that we could call horizontal peace. The peace that we have that's external, the peace we have with other people. It's the, it's the societal equivalence to the absence of conflict. If you do not have a war, then you have peace. And, and of course, that's the kind of thing that drives much American foreign policy, does it not? And, and that's, a, that's a good thing. We are specifically told in either First or Second Timothy, I'm not sure I remember which one, but in one of those, Paul specifically says, you who are Christians, I want you to pray for the people who rule over you so that you may have a life of peace. He's talking about there the horizontal aspect. He, he's saying we can be faithful to God more easily if we're not in the midst of a war zone. Christians are to pray and labor for societal or social peace between governments and individuals. Additionally, that's the horizontal aspect, though. There is a vertical aspect. There's an aspect of peace that has to do with a relationship with God. And, and that peace, the vertical, has two different parts. It has an objective part, what the Bible calls peace with God. And the preposition is important there. Peace with God. An objective peace. That's where... God declares, he, he as it were signs a peace treaty. He declares that peace has been established. No longer are we at war with him. It is a fact. It is an objective reality. There is a second aspect of peace, though. That's the subjective, the peace not 
with God, but the peace of God. That's when we know in our souls the presence and acceptance of God, even in the midst of chaos. And this subjective peace is what Paul refers to here in Philippians 4, 7, the peace of God. Let me give you a definition and then we'll see if we can flush it out. I would suggest to you that peace in our text is this, the confidence in your soul, which results from faith that there is a sovereign and all-powerful God who is both good to you and present with you in all your circumstances. It's the confidence in your soul which results from faith that there is a sovereign and all-powerful God who is both good to you and present with you in all your circumstances. Three observations to make as we begin and, and work into a biblical definition. First, you need to know that biblical peace does not come, it does not come by changing your circumstances. Every day, people seek to do whatever they can to control the chaos in their lives. Right? They try to change people. You try to change circumstances in order that the world around you has peace. So the angry husband who yells, I just want some peace and quiet in this house. Or the bitter wife who clams up when her feelings are hurt. Or the hopeless couple who runs away from their church because they have been mistreated. They all have something in common, right? They're seeking to establish peace by a change in external circumstances. One, at one church I pastored, one of the men came to me, and I'm not going to use the colorful, I think they call it French, uh, that he used, because it wouldn't be appropriate in a sermon, but basically what he said this is, my life is terrible, my, my marriage is terrible, and I hate my job, and I don't like church that much either, but I really hate my job and my wife, but I can't figure out a way to change those. So I'm leaving the church. <laughs> I thought, that's, that's a way to try to get peace. But I'm not sure that's what God has in mind. Sometimes it, I think our lives look like that church bulletin blooper which read, the peacemaking meeting which is scheduled for today has been canceled due to a conflict. <laughs> right? We don't, we don't want to go through the peacemaking meeting. We just want to cancel it <laughs> when there's conflict. But you need to know that biblical peace is not a result of avoiding conflict. It's not a result of changing your circumstances. And many of you are still trying to do that. And you will not succeed. Second, though, you need to know that biblical peace is not real without reconciliation with God. It's not real without reconciliation with God. The peace of God, which Paul talks about in this passage, requires first peace with God. There are many books and many religious movements today that would tell you that you can have peace, you can have some kind of spiritual peace, and they would suggest that you can get it without a proper reconciliation with God through Jesus Christ. Let's pause here and think for just a moment, because it may be helpful for some of you today to remember who is your great enemy before you become a born-again Christian. 
If you today are one, or maybe you've forgotten it, but maybe you're one here today who's never really made peace with God. I want to remind you of who is your enemy. Your enemy is God. (laughs) And what an enemy you have. The Bible says that you are in your heart and mind fighting against Him at every turn. And yet, what does He do to you? Bomb you with nuclear bombs? No, He woos you to Himself. He is compassionate and merciful. He is working for your conversion. He is ordering all of the universe for your blessing to draw you to Himself. All the while, we're cursing and despising Him. Don't you wish all of your enemies fought that way? I've had some enemies before, not just spiritual enemies, but I've had some people enemies, and they don't fight quite nice like that. But we need to remember, we cannot have the peace of God unless we have the true peace with God. Have you made peace with God? Have you come to the place in your life where you admitted that you are God's enemy? That you have made yourself God's enemy? Have you laid down your weapons at the cross and accepted Jesus making a peace treaty in your behalf? Are you confident today that you know, but you know, but you know that He loves you, He knows you personally, and that nothing can separate you from His kindness and grace? Do you believe that all of His power and all of His mercy are converging together to order every bit of your chaos for your blessing? It's hard to do, is it not? That requires great humility to admit that I have made myself God's enemy. I once preached a sermon. I had a relative sitting over on the left side of the church, and I, somewhere in the sermon I mentioned that people who are not born-again Christians hate God. And she was furious about that. How dare you say, hey, I hate God. I don't even believe in Him. Here's someone she doesn't even believe in, and she's mad at me for saying something about it. See, the point is, she did hate God. But it's hard to admit that, isn't it? We think far too well of ourselves to dare confess that we have rebelled and fought against a God who is known by love, compassion, grace, mercy, and kindness. (laughs) And yet, until you own your enmity with God, and therefore are able and then receive Christ's peace with God on your behalf. You cannot have an experience of God's peace in your life. There is no real peace of God until there is real reconciliation with God and peace with Him. Then third, you need to remember that biblical peace may not result in a reduction of the chaos. It may not result in a reduction of the chaos. See, if you think about it, before you came to Christ, or this morning if you have not yet done so, you you have really one enemy, one great enemy, and he is God. And that enemy, God, loves you very much. But when you become a Christian, you trade that one enemy for lots of enemies, right? You have Satan and you have demons and you have people who at times seem to hate you. Jesus even said that, didn't he? He said, you know, sometimes your enemies are going to be the people in your own household. Sometimes your own 
parents will be your enemy. Sometimes it'll be your spouse or your children. So all of a sudden you've traded one enemy who loves you very much for many enemies who seem to hate you and seek to make your life miserable. And here's what that means very practically. It means this. A Christian may appear to have less peace in her life even while she knows the peace of God. See, it doesn't necessarily reduce the chaos. You may have more chaos in your life because biblical peace is not, it is not the absence of conflict. And until we acknowledge that biblical definition and put it away from our thinking that peace is the absence of conflict, we will not know how to get to the peace of God in the midst of our conflict. Then second, once we've grabbed hold of a biblical definition, we have to do the next thing. We have to deny ourselves the opposite of peace. We have to deny ourselves anxiety and worry. Look at verse 6 in our text. Be anxious for nothing. Unless you think Paul got caught up in some kind of religious enthusiasm and is just exaggerated greatly because there's no way we could be anxious for nothing. Jesus said almost the exact same thing. Do not worry about what you will eat or what you will drink or what you will wear. And yet, my friend John Piper, in an article on eating the bread of anxiety, admitted that he wakes up almost every day anxious about many things. Some sins we have a hard time admitting or recognizing that we share in common with everybody, but anxiety is not one of those, is it? I mean, if you're honest, everyone in here has had moments of worry and anxiety. It's a sin of the heart. It may be a respectable one, but it is a sin of the heart which every one of us knows intimately and personally. So how do we find victory over it? Well, here I want to give you four truths, four things that you can recognize that uh, we, might, we might picture as plowing the soil of our hearts so that the Spirit can plant there the seed of the Word and it bear forth the fruit of peace. How do we plow the heart and prepare it to receive the Word? We do it by recognizing four things. First, recognize the battle against anxiety. In Galatians 5, when God is telling you that the fruit of the Spirit is peace, He couches that in a paragraph that on the top of it and the bottom of it, it says that to have these, this fruit in your life, you, you're going to have a battle with your old sin nature. Right? Galatians 5 begins with the spirit makes war against the flesh and the flesh makes war against the spirit and they're fighting one another. Then he says, bear the fruit of the spirit. And then he concludes that paragraph by saying, therefore, you have to have your old sin nature crucified. And, and the application is, it's really simple, but yet it is terribly profound. Here it is. The struggle for peace is a spiritual battle. The struggle for peace is a spiritual battle. And, and, that, and let me just tell you what it means. It means this, you cannot win it on your own. You just cannot win it on your own, but there's a corollary to it. You cannot lose it if you will appeal to Christ. 
You cannot win this battle on on your own, but if you will apply to Christ for peace, you cannot lose because it is the gracious promise of the Father in heaven who gives all good things to those that ask. Do you believe God? Will you believe God this morning for peace in your anxiety? Then second, second thing to recognize, to plow that soil in your heart is to recognize the allure of anxiety. If you know what the word allure means, that's a silly thing to say at first, it seems like. The allure is the attractiveness. Why, Why would anxiety be attractive? Why would anyone want to be anxious? We don't want that, do we? We don't want to be anxious about things. Well, let's think about it. If Paul, if God says that the fruit of the Spirit requires a fight against the flesh and the crucifixion of the flesh, then there must be something about the flesh that likes anxiety. What could it be? Let me give you three examples. First, choosing to be anxious can give you a feeling of control, can it not? Think about it. If God says that the alternative of anxiousness is to pray and to cast your cares upon the Lord and to entrust Him to do everything that is good for you, Wow, then to be full of peace means to give up control to God, doesn't it? Wow, that's no fun. Who wants to do that? What if He doesn't do it right? And so our flesh holds on to some sense of control by saying, I'm going to worry and fret and tie you up in knots over this. Choosing to be anxious can be something you use to manipulate others, can't it? You may be afraid to say to your teenager, Susie, you cannot go to the party tonight. And if you're afraid to say that because you're afraid of the conflict that may result, you're afraid of losing that relationship, what you may do instead is say, well, I can't stop you from going to the party, but I just want you to know how much your mother and I are going to worry about you. And try to guilt them in, manipulate them so they don't stay out too late or they maybe skip the party entirely. Choosing to be anxious can give a feeling of control to the flesh. It can be used to manipulate people. You know what else it can do? It can make us feel that we care more than we really do. We can use it to salve a guilty conscience for not doing enough. What if I have a friend who has had too much to drink and I should take his keys and not let him drive? I may give myself over to worry for him because I feel guilty that I did not stop him. See, there are, there are many reasons that the flesh, that the flesh, by the way, when the Bible says it, it's talking about our sinful desires, our sinful passions. There are many reasons that our sinful passions like to hold on to anxiety. So we need to recognize that. Then third, you have to actually recognize the anxieties themselves. About what are you anxious About what are you anxious? I bet everyone in here has been anxious about money at some time. Have you ever made a list of what you're anxious about? Would money be on that list? Maybe maybe you're anxious about getting sick. Some pretty wicked diseases out in the world now, aren't there? There are things like Alzheimer's. I know a lot of people worry about that, worry about losing their minds when they get older. Who's going to take care of me? What's going to happen to me? Am I going to make an idiot of myself? What's going to happen? Around and around our minds go, toiling and troubling, spinning, 
wrenching, grinding, tying us up in knots. Maybe it's not sickness for you. Maybe it's guilt. Maybe you worry that someone is going to find out about the thing you did. Maybe it's divorce. Maybe it's never getting married. Maybe you spend most of your time in anxiety over your children. What's going to happen to them? Are they going to turn out all right? Are they going to get well? Are they going to die? Are they going to crash? What's going to happen? Grinding and the teeth of the... It's like the gears you're trying to shift into third gear without pushing in the clutch. It's grinding inside of you. What is it that makes you anxious? Sometimes what we do is we allow our minds to just wander around over unspecified anxieties. And if instead of doing that, we begin to name them, that will begin to apply God's gracious forgiveness and peace. If you just pause and write them down, you're going to find out... You know what the first thing you're going to find out? is the list is not infinite. You have some things you're anxious about, right? But it's not everything in the world. It may be, maybe it's four or five or six things. Maybe it's two or three. Maybe it is even seven or eight. But probably most of you can't even think of really seven or eight things that you're anxious about. But as long as they remained unnamed, your mind flits around. It's never quite sure what it's anxious about. Never has any way to get to a solution. Never has any way to appeal to God's grace. Never has any promise you can believe. When, in one of the counseling tapes I was listening to, uh, David Pallison counseled someone uh, who had gotten themselves... I shared this on Friday night with our, our small group. He gotten, she had gotten herself to the point where she was absolutely wrapped up with anxiety because... She was afraid to, to drive her car, but she just knew if she drove over a bridge, her tire would blow out and she would fall over the bridge and die. So it started out, when she first started feeling these ways, she began to uh, get out her little MapQuest thing and she would plot trips where she never had to go over a bridge and go around those. And then as she massaged this thought this, this wild thought and, and kept running it over and over in her mind, she for, began to realize, you know, it's best just never to get in the car. And so after a year or two, she, got her, she never left her home because she was afraid of bridges. And so when, when David Pallison counseled her, he asked her what she was afraid of, why she never left her home, afraid of bridges. Well, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? Well, I could die. And then he said, and what's so bad about that? I mean, really. Sometimes just naming it allows you to begin to say, you know, what is the worst thing that could happen? And does God have a promise for that? He promises that all of His people, precious in the sight of the Lord, is the death of His saints. Paul says, um, and allowed her to begin to memorize Scripture. Once she actually said, this is what I'm afraid of, then she could say with Paul, I desire to go and be with the Lord. And yet, it may be needful that I stand here. Will you recognize the anxieties? Will you recognize that they're not infinite? Will you name them? Then fourth, way to begin to plow the heart and prepare for the seed of the Word planted by the Spirit to bear the fruit of peace is to recognize the reasons for your feelings of anxiety. To recognize the reasons. You know what? If you write down on that list 
the things you're anxious about, you know what you're going to find? You have some good reasons to be anxious. Don't you? I mean, there's some really whoppers on that list, aren't there? There's some things that are worth being anxious about. I find as I read the Bible, God never trivializes our troubles. He doesn't say, oh, no worries, mate. He doesn't say that, does he? God says you have every reason to be anxious, but listen, you have an even better reason not to be anxious. You have an even better reason to talk to someone, to apply for help from someone who will overcome those. See, you have every reason to be anxious, but there is someone who loves you and will be with you in the midst of every trouble. We're fallen people living in a fallen world, and peace is not, please hear this, peace is not the result of pretending that you don't have a difficult life. I just find that nowhere in the Bible. Peace is not the result of pretending that life is not hard. Peace comes from knowing the God of peace who has entered into our fallen world. And that's a very different answer. Well, third then, we must be cautious about the counterfeit of peace. And I would suggest to you that the counterfeit of peace is really cowardice. Or you may, there may be other uh, times it would look more like pacifism. Here, here's what happens. You know what, sometimes we want peace so badly that we are willing to do unbiblical things to get it, right? We want peace. We want just to have some peace for a season. And so we're willing to compromise what we believe. We're willing to be faithless in order to try to, for, to try to get that. You need to remember that Jesus said, do not think that I came to bring peace. I came to bring a sword on the earth. God's peace is not found. It's not found by running away from conflict, but by trusting Him to walk with us through it. I, I looked on the internet and I could not find any news reports since about 1998. So... Uh, I'm not sure what's happened since then. But there was, a, I thought, a good example of this in the church in Lincoln, Westminster Presbyterian Church. Some of you know about a church in Lincoln where they made a man in the congregation an elder in the church. And then the pro-life, pro-life people found out that he was killing babies. He was an abortionist. And so people started picketing at their church and trying to convince them to change. And here's what I found interesting. The, the other pastors, or the pastors of the church and the other elders would not do anything about it. And you know exactly what they were thinking. If we try to discipline one of our elders, if we, if we say you're, we're going to kick you off the session and bring discipline to you, that's going to make all kind of problems in the church, isn't it? People are going to be mad at us. They're going to make a scene. We're going to split the church. We're going to have all these problems. And so, in an effort to get outside, uh, external and outward peace, they compromised what they did. They were cowardly and afraid to do what God says, said in a hope that they would have some kind of external peace. And as a result, I don't know if... I don't know if the pastors and elders there are converted or not. They seem by their works not to be. But I guarantee you, if they are, what they lack right now is a peace of conscience. You cannot have peace with God sometimes unless you raise 
the conflict to an all-out war. But that's what God requires. Because the counterfeit of peace, which is cowardice or pacifism, is not the kind of peace God gives. Well, then how do we, if we've done all this preparation, we've got a definition, we've tilled our soil by recognition, how do we begin to get true peace in our lives? I see six commands in this text. Six commands in Philippians 4 that tell us how the means of God's bringing peace in your life. First, look at verse 4. Paul says, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. And again, I say to you, Christian friends, you may have many reasons to worry, but you have greater reasons to rejoice. See, we're already rejoicing. Hallelujah. You have great reasons to worry, but you have greater reasons to rejoice. Let's just take an example. Let's suppose that you, are begin, you have begun to be anxious about losing your job. How could there be anything to rejoice about there? Well, let me just give some examples. You could rejoice that if you do lose your job, it will be an opportunity to depend upon the Lord and see His provision. You can rejoice that during times of trouble, you will draw closer to your spouse as you have something specific that's very important for you to pray about. Rejoice that this will lead you to pray more. Rejoice that you will end up with a better job because your Father in Heaven loves you more than you even love yourself. Rejoice that you live in a country where jobs are plentiful. Rejoice that God is sovereign over every job loss and loves you whether you have a job or not. Rejoice at the empathy you will develop for others who have lost their jobs. But I, I tell you, I have tried this, and there is nothing I can think of, maybe nothing in my life that my flesh resists more than rejoicing when it so wants to be anxious. Your flesh, your sin nature will say, I cannot rejoice. And I say to you, you can rejoice, but you right now are totally controlled by your emotions. You are allowing them to lead you around with a noose around your neck and be con being controlled by evil thoughts. God says, rejoice. Let us rejoice in the truth that all things work together for good for those who love Him. Then second, after Paul tells us to rejoice, he says to lean. Look at verse 5. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Or the Lord is near. When you are full of anxiety, you begin to live like a functional atheist. That, that means that you may say, yeah, I believe in God, but the God I believe in has no, has no oomph. He has no power. He can't seem to get anything done that I want done. You feel like it's you and your problems going head to head. Like one-on-one, -on -one, right? Except your problems, your problems are Michael Jordan, right? He's got the basketball, you're playing 21, and you're going one-on-one -on -one with Michael Jordan. And what chance do I have, right? And into the midst of that, God's, Paul reminds us, but God is near. When you get the ball, you have someone you can pass to that's better than Michael Jordan. God is with you. God is near. There's a Baby Blues cartoon where Daryl, Daryl is the, 
husband in, in Baby's Blues, the father, and he's asleep in the middle of the night, and all of a sudden he wakes up uh, and oh, something's wrong here, and he's real uncomfortable. And he gets up out of his bed and he takes his pillow and turns it upside down and begins to shake it. And out of the pillowcase falls his daughter Zoe. And he says, did you have a nightmare tonight, Zoe? (laughs) Kids want to be close to their dad or their mom when they're afraid. Now, when my kids are worried about something, when there's a big thunderstorm or or they are anxious... I don't think they really believe that I'm going to make it all better. But they really believe this. If dad walks with them, if dad is close, it'll be okay. Right? Even in the midst of chaos, it will be okay. The Lord is at hand. Lean upon him in your anxiety. Then third... We are told in verse 6 to pray and supplicate with thanksgiving. The word pray is the common word in the Bible for prayer. And then Paul lists another word for prayer. And he has in mind, I believe, what Jesus did. See, we often think that if you have peace, what it's going to feel like is like being stoned, like being out of it, like being dazed or drugged. You just walk through life and nothing bothers you. You're just kind of floating, right? That's what we think of as peace. But that's not what the Bible describes peace of God looking like. See, when godly men and women are in the midst of trouble, you know what they're doing? They are crying out to God for help. They are pleading with Him instead of using all of their energy to worry and to wind up their stomach into knots and to fret and to try to use their brains to figure out how you are going to get some kind of clamp on all of the chaos, which ends up leaving you full of anxiety. Godly women, godly men are taking that energy and they are expending it with loud cries and prayers for God to be with you and deliver you. And that's how you end up with the grace and presence of the Spirit of God. I want to be careful not to try to give you some formulaic answer here. But I I do think it's true that silent prayers will not suffice in the midst of turmoil. Silent prayers will not suffice. You know how it is when you're sitting around your prayer, sitting in your chair, and you're trying to imagine a prayer in your mind, but you never actually say it. Oh, God, I don't want to be anxious. Okay. And, and, and that's all you do? I don't think silent prayers are enough. I think anxiety must be fought, maybe more than any other temptation to sin. Anxiety must be fought with loud prayers and pleadings. You have to pray out loud. You have to pray what's on your heart, and you have to mean it. That's exactly what Jesus did. Listen to Hebrews 5. In the days of His flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications, the same two words Paul picks here, with loud cries and tears. You see that? Jesus had peace. He said, my peace I give you, my peace I leave with you, and yet His peace was not floating along saying, no worries, mate, yeah, right, whatever, 
I'm just cool, you know, nothing bothers me. That's not what peace is. Peace was loud cries and tears because it was a spiritual work that God was doing. And then fourth, Paul tells us we must desire peace. Look at verse 7. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Let's just be honest. Can we be honest for a few minutes? Can I love on you? (laughs) Most of you want a God who will reorder your chaos and you're not interested in a God who refuses to do so. That's why we cannot find the true God in the midst of chaos, right? We, we have these problems that come around and we say, when we committed ourselves to God or to Christ, we said, I'm going to believe in a God who will make everything happy, right? And then when the real God comes to us and says, well, this is what I'm doing, I'm ordering your life and I'm filling it with all kind of chaos because I love you so much. We say, that's not the God I signed up for. I'm not interested in that God, right? I want the God who is like the genie on I Dream of Genie. You rub the lamp, you smile, you say, give me this, I want a Maserati, a Lamborghini, whatever it is for you. That's the God I want. And then the real God says, but that's not who I am. And then that's where we are caught, right, between a rock and a hard place. Most of us lack the courage to say, well, if that's who you really are, this is the God I signed up for, forget you. But we also lack the courage to say, if this is the true God, I want Him no matter what. So I'm on. Bring it on. We try to hang out in the middle, right? We try to convince this God to give us a few good things while we're also, what are we busy doing, right? We're busy trying to order our lives to get as much comfort as we can. It may be we buy a little better house or we change churches or change spouses or change jobs or we just try so hard to get some peace externally. Now, you have to decide whether you desire the God of peace, to be with you in your turmoil. Or whether, quite honestly, you would rather just say, you know, if that's the kind of God who is, I don't want that. All I want is a God who will make everything better. But here's the promise of the Bible. If you choose the latter, if you are one of God's elect, one day He will bring chaos that you cannot handle. And on that day, you will again be faced with the question. You can spend your life trying to organize everything so you don't have chaos. But one day, He will bring the world crashing down on you. And so what God is telling us now is that we can begin to know His peace no matter whatever life brings, so that no matter what it brings, we will know Him and we will walk in peace. Then fifth, if we really desire the God of peace to be our God, And to show us His peace, we have to think differently. Look at verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, noble, just, pure, lovely, of good report, of anything of virtue and praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Boy, each one of those is a couple of sermons in and of itself, and I'm not going to preach those this morning. All I'm going to do is simply tell you this. Satan is a liar. 
And one of the things he will constantly do is try to convince you to believe something that's not true. Peace comes by meditating on the things that are true about God, about you, and about your problems. Someone said, worry is a river which cuts into your mind a deep gouge for all good thoughts to drain out of. (laughs) Worry is a river that cuts a deep gouge through your mind and all good thoughts drain out of it. We must think differently. We must meditate on the things that are true and just and pure and lovely and of good report. And then finally, sixth command here is to believe. Look at verse 9. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. And here's the belief part. The God of peace will be with you. He will be with you. So if you do what God says, if you walk through the steps of plowing your heart, believing His promise, implementing these steps, He will be with you. And so the question to end then is, will you believe His promises? Will you believe what He says? Will you believe in your every anxiety that the God of peace is and will be with you? And will you act like a believer? The story is told of a day when death was walking toward a city. And as death walked toward the city, there was a man outside the city walls and he stopped death and said, Where are you going? And death said to him, I'm going in that city and I'm going to slay 10,000 people. And the man said to death, That's terrible. That's a horrible thing. And death said, It's a living. It's what I do. It's my job. I'm, that's what I do. Well, the man wasn't going to put up with that. So he took off running and runs into the city and runs around the city like a crazed person telling everybody that death was coming. He wanted everyone to know and to avoid this terrible enemy. At the end of the day, the man left the city heartbroken. And when he did, he saw death again. And he said to death, You said you were going to slay 10,000 people, but 70,000 died. And death said, I only slayed 10. Fear and anxiety killed the other 60,000. You think about that. Father, would you please deliver us from the sin of anxiety? Would you please teach us to long for your peace? Would you please... Give us the grace to resist the temptation to, at every turn, try to organize our lives where we have external peace, but instead delight in your... And when the sun shines in all of these, to say it is well with my soul because the God of peace is with us. We pray this through Christ and ask, Lord, you to give us your peace. And God's people say...